You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Simon Johnson, who is a professor at MIT at the Sloan School of Management, also the author of numerous books. The most recent book, which is co-authored with Daron Esamolyu, is called Power and Progress, Our 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. We also have a couple other books. I have this one here. It's uh, 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover, which I remember getting more than a decade ago or so. And you also have White House Burning and Jumpstarting America, some of which are co-authored. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. Well, look, this book touches on a lot of my favorite topics, ranging from economic history to machine learning. <laughs> and I've taught in both of those disciplines. And I think the purpose of the book is throwing water on the techno-utopian vision, which I'm not sure if it's as pronounced where you are in Cambridge, but you know, I think Silicon Valley is sort of the epicenter of this. And you remind us that there have been sort of similar utopian visions, and you go all the way back to Jeremy Bentham. I'm surprised you didn't go back to Pangloss, right, the fictional character. But you say that they're making a couple of different mistakes. I mean, one mistake is to believe that all technology leads to increases in productivity. The second mistake is that when the productivity improvements happen, that they make most people, if not all people, better off. And I think the third point is that these technological improvements will generally be used for good and not for evil. Okay. And I think probably of the three arguments, it's the second one that you really spend most of the time on, which is the idea that if we do have productivity increases, they can be ones that are more or less inclusive. And the direction that we go in is not something that is inevitable. It's not something that is dictated by the nature of production, but is rather a function of competing visions that manifest themselves in the political domain, right? And in the kind of political economy and the way in which sort of negotiation power and bargaining power is distributed throughout the society. So, I mean, that's a pretty big task. <laughs> and I think we'll probably start off with the economic history bit, and then we'll bring it to the present. Does that sound like, is that an accurate description? Oh, that's a great, that's a great summary, Greg. I'll be using that one from now on. Well done. Well, let's get started with the economic history, right? Because it is a 1,000 year struggle and you go all the way back to the pyramids, which is before a thousand, obviously, and also to the cathedrals and to slavery. And you highlight that, you know, the soon as we moved into agricultural production, there was going to be this surplus that was created. And that language has reminded me, of course, in, of Marx and Engels, the idea that there's this surplus. And the question is, who gets the surplus, right? Who gets the rents? How are the rents distributed? And for much of human history, it's not been distributed terribly equally. And then you fast forward and emphasize the history beginning with the Industrial Revolution, so I think a lot of historians of the Industrial Revolution talk about it as at least a story of continual improvement of the human condition. But when you read a lot of the contemporary accounts, I mean, I remember taking Victorian history in college, starting with Engels and even the Tories. I mean, they were highlighting the, the misery that the Industrial Revolution brought in. So why was it that the Industrial Revolution did not result in improving the conditions of most people? Well, let me answer that question first, Greg, and then maybe step back and talk about the long history perspective on the Industrial Revolution and on modern society. I think that the key point from the Industrial Revolution is that, and this is sort of, it fits very much our meta view of technology, which is that it did increase productivity. It did, as you say, increase the surplus that could be shared in some fashion, but it also increased the power of a certain set of people, the people who owned the mills, the cotton mills, in particular in the North of England, for example, where I'm from. And that 
change in the balance of power is part of what, of course, encouraged them to invest as part of what gave them a good return on investment. But it also meant they didn't really care that much about the workers. And there were classes of workers, at least, for example, weavers who had previously worked at home with hand looms, who were pretty much crushed in economic terms when power looms came along. They had to go work at the factory, had to work long hours, didn't make that much money, certainly not, not that much per hour. And they lived in, in very difficult conditions in, in these large cities. Now, eventually, the Industrial Revolution works out much better because there's a change in the political process, there's a rising voice of those industrial workers, and there's a, a development of social and political pressure to share the benefits. But it takes a long time. It takes, uh, I would say, at least 70 years for those benefits really to be shared. And so the, the question today is, are we looking at a similar sort of transformation from artificial intelligence? Maybe yes, maybe no, we can discuss that. But if I told you <laughs> good news, you're going to get the benefits and your family's going to gain in 70 years, I think you should reasonably say, why, Simon? Why do I have to wait seven years? Why can't we learn the lessons of history, arrange things a bit differently and get those benefits more immediately? Just to go back and take the, the long sweep of history point, I think if you go back as far as you can in, in human history, let's say 50,000 years, we definitely have the understanding that humans, as long as there's been something, an entity defined as, as, as modern humans, they've been making tools, they've been working to shape their environment, they've made friends with dogs very early on, all of these things created benefits and they were very, as far as we know, very widely shared among hunter-gatherer groups. So these are extremely egalitarian societies. In every instance that we've been able to observe, obviously we can't see exactly what happened 50,000 years ago, but we've seen many hunter-gatherers since then. There are records of some kinds. It's as you said, when we settled down and went for agriculture, I think somebody, we don't know who, <laughs> had the brilliant ideas, let's settle down, let's get more productivity by cultivating the same crops. What they omitted to mention was that would come with a very stratified hierarchical society that allowed some innovation, but also crushed a lot of individual initiative, didn't let people rise up, kept the king and the whatever theologians in power. And breaking loose from that has taken us a thousand years. And the key moment of the escape from hierarchical agricultural societies was the Industrial Revolution. Excellent, good news, but it took a long time. And it didn't initially, it wasn't like we invented cotton factories and we were done with those with that hierarchy. No, on the contrary, it took a lot longer. It was a more complicated story. And that matters, I think, for how we think about it today. But I mean, the standard story that we economists tell in the classroom, at least, is that if you increase productivity, then there will be a bidding war for labor, right? Because each unit of labor will produce more output. And so there will be a desire for that labor and it will ultimately flow back in the form of wages. So what's wrong with that story? I mean, I think that economists oftentimes confuse the marginal revenue product and the average revenue product. So is it just the nature of the production processes that were put into use in the Industrial Revolution where there was this massive gap between the kind of average product of a worker in these textile mills and kind of the marginal product that the workers, because they were sort of replaceable on the margin, they didn't have any bargaining power as individuals? Yes. I think you put your finger on the key issue. Exactly, Greg. It's the difference between average and marginal productivity. That's an easy concept for a lot of economists to grasp. A lot of non-economists' eyes will glaze over. So I often explain it this way. that when you, If you think about what Henry Ford did. So Henry Ford starts with the auto industry uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. The auto industry is quite a small industry at that point, makes about 40,000 cars, and they're mostly made by craftsmen. Henry Ford has two big innovations. One is the assembly line, and the second is bringing electricity to the assembly line. So what happened when he automated those jobs, the craftsmen's jobs, was he displaced those workers, right? But at the same time, what Ford did and what all the people around him and the, his competitors and so on did was they created a large number of new tasks those new tasks were high productivity, marginal productivity, right? Downstream and upstream. And this happened in a political setting where the bargaining power tilted towards workers. I think actually there were enough new tasks created and the demand for labor was so strong that even with the pre-existing power of workers, they would have got higher wages. But there's no question that the rise of unions coincided with this. And, and, and this was a feature of the 1930s and then also what happened in the 1940s and afterwards. And that led to more sharing of those economic rents, the profits that were made by these more productive auto production processes. So it's that's what you're looking for, I think, in any modern setting, including with AI, is, okay, we've got some algorithms, they're going to replace people who were previously doing some things. But are we creating new tasks? Because those new tasks are going to be the drivers or not of rising demand for labor. And the nature of the task is also gonna be very 
influential today in how much people get paid, particularly because unions have obviously receded massively in terms of their power and presence in the private sector in, in the US and other countries. Yeah, so you contrast sort of the industrial transformation that happened in England in the early 19th century with the industrial transformation that happened in, in America. And the impact of the American transformation was less detrimental, I think, to the industrial workers. And so, I mean, you talk about a couple different things that seem to be happening simultaneously. Are you able to tease apart the causation, right? Because on, on the one hand, there is a different sort of technology involved, right? One that creates these new positions, right? It's not just simple automation. The other is that you have this greater bargaining power, right, on behalf of the workers. I mean, there's another thing which you didn't mention explicitly, but I think it's kind of the opportunity cost of labor is higher in the U.S., right? So if your working conditions in the factory are no good, you know, you just go and create a farm out in North Dakota or something, right? Which was not an option available to the typical English worker. So are those things unrelated? Are they separable um, theoretically or are they related in some way? Well, they're obviously related in terms of historical circumstance. I mean, one reason to think about the new tasks in Henry Ford case is there wasn't a big expansion on the frontier in the 1920s, 1930s, right? So bargaining power for workers absolutely increased. There was a big fight for union recognition and to increase the power of unions in the auto industry. So we know that was going on. We can see the new tasks being created. Uh, I think this, the idea that there's a this external margin is a very interesting one for the 19th century, but doesn't really apply to the 20th century. Causation is hard, uh, as you know, Greg, it, but I think we can see what the pattern is. And of course, we should emphasize, I should emphasize, when we're talking about the success of American manufacturing, the fact that it was it really worked out quite well for industrial workers, in part because of the way the machines were deployed in this American system of manufacturing. Th there was, unfortunately, at the same time, and, and not entirely unrelated, the development of the cotton industry in the South, which was based on plantation agriculture that was made possible at scale by innovations, particularly the cotton gin, most famously associated with the Ellie Whitney, but other people also invented cotton gins. Those cotton gins made it possible to cultivate upland cotton profitably at scale and therefore facilitated directly and really tragically the movement of a large number of enslaved people from the East Coast into the Deep South. Now, the conditions of slaves on the East Coast was already very bad. Conditions working on cotton plantations in the Deep South in the first 60 years of the 19th century were probably some of the worst conditions enslaved people have ever faced anywhere in, in history. So the American productivity miracle, the American innovation, American management has had those two sides at inception, right? One very positive, transformational, and, and helping the world, that's the American system of manufacturing. The other providing cheap cotton to British industry, very helpful to the British Industrial Revolution, but absolutely reinforcing a system of slavery that, as far as I can see, remained very strong and very oppressive right up to the Civil War. Now, when people talk about technological advance, if we go back to kind of the, the Whig story or the, the Benthamite story, I mean, even we go back to Adam Smith when he talks about division of labor, I mean, the idea that if we could replace a skilled craftsperson with a bunch of unskilled workers through the factory system. I mean, yes, the person who has all that skill is going to be much easier to replace and therefore their bargaining power will go down. But doesn't that open up opportunity to people who don't have that kind of skill, the folks that don't have the ability to invest three, four, five years as apprentices? I mean, you could be kicked off your land through enclosure, show up at the factory and immediately start working. So doesn't that kind of reduce some of the barriers to entry? I mean, if we average out the folks who are made worse off and the folks who are made better off, why aren't the folks who made are made better off, why don't they outweigh the number of people who are made worse off? Well, I think that's the key question, Greg, and I think that's an empirical matter in each of these transformations. And at the time, of the in the 20th century in the United States, I think Henry Ford and the auto industry expansion of Detroit worked exactly as you said. Some people lost their livelihoods making cars in the old-fashioned way, a lot of new people got opportunity. Now, of course, they had an opportunity to work for Henry Ford, <laughs> who, who ran a very tough uh, shop. You had to work extremely hard, and there was a lot of burnout. But you're right, if we just look at that calculation, jobs are lost, jobs are created. In the earlier part of the Industrial Revolution, in the, particularly the advent of the power loom, which was at the second decade of the 19th century and the 20, 30 years that followed, there, it seems that the net was went the other way, that a lot of men were working in handlooms, 
part-time perhaps, or small shops, they lost business. It was women and children who got employed in the new factories in pretty harsh conditions. So it was a bit more complicated and it, the benefits were not shared that broadly. And so I think that, you know, the question that we can have today is generative AI, what's it going to do to productivity? Who wins, who loses? How do you share the benefits more broadly? Is there, are there paths that you can take with technology that can be more beneficial to more people? Right. You distinguish between these two sorts of technological improvement and you call the first sort of simple automation and the other, you have a couple different terms for it, right? But they are improvements that require new sorts of skills. How would we identify ex ante whether or not a technology is likely to be one kind or the other? I mean, is it necessarily going to become one or the other, or do we have some ability to channel the technological improvements in one direction or the other? Well, that's a great question. And of course, that's a central question for the policy debate that's right now going on in Washington. Because if you knew... So with pharmaceutical drugs, we think we have... not It's not uncontroversial, of course, but we think there is a way to determine ex ante which drugs are going to be beneficial and a way to weigh the costs and the risks relative to the benefits, right? So we put a lot of emphasis on ex ante approval. And I think generally that works well, although it's obviously not perfect and the people have complaints. I think when it comes to information technology, and, and so there's some other technologies, I think, where we might be able to make some sort of similar determinations, perhaps. But when it comes to information technology, when it comes to the use of computers, when it comes to artificial intelligence, I honestly think, and we tried to say this in the book, that's very hard. We are not, for example, in favor of attacks on robots. We're not in favor of trying to stop technological change in, in AI, because we think that is a very hard case to make. What we'd like is to have more competition, more business models, more alternatives out there that are focused on enhancing human creativity and human abilities, rather than what we regard, and I mean, I think what the proponents talk about in their own words, and we quote, which is a focus on primarily displacing people and, and replacing workers. So we're trying to tilt or encourage people to tilt the direction of technological progress in a particular direction. But I agree, I think, with where you're going, Greg, which is if you don't know ex ante, what's going to create which kind of new tasks and for whom, you've got to be very careful about how you meddle with the process because you might actually cut off the easily cut off the positive parts and leave yourself with the negative parts. So you've got to be extremely cautious with that. Well, I mean, one of the examples that I'll frequently point to is in accounting, right? So if we go back to the 19... 20s and you wanted to study to be an accountant, you would spend three or four years learning how to add numbers, right? And when you were really good at adding numbers with a very low error rate, they would anoint you CPA and say, okay, now you can go <laughs> and be an accountant. And when they invented calculators, and I remember my, my father had one of these big monstrosities on his desk with all the buttons and so forth. You might think, well, now that means that anybody can be an accountant. But what ultimately happened was that, you know, accountants had to become more sophisticated, more skilled, and had to think at, at a much higher level. So that's sort of the story that techno-optimists would like to make, that we are going to simply push everybody in the direction of higher skills, which will ultimately result in more bargaining power and ultimately higher income. What's wrong with that story? I mean, it seems somewhat plausible, right? Yeah, I think that is a good story for the calculator. I think particularly there was a lot of concern at the time that the calculator would destroy mathematical ability or prevent people from learning math and so on. And that clearly didn't happen. I think that artificial intelligence could do this. I don't know about you, Greg, but we're, we're redoing how we grade in my courses for the first time in 25 years because... Look, we could ban ChatGPT, but that's a losing battle, right? Because you can't detect it and everyone's going to be using it. But also why? Wouldn't that be like banning people from using a calculator in my course, which I'm teaching economics, I'm not teaching simple math, I'm teaching MBAs who hopefully know the simple math. So what we're trying to do, and I think other people, are, but it's not original to us, other people are trying to do is figure out a way to allow or encourage the use of AI, but raise the bar. So we're going to say, look, to get an A, we're going to want a better answer. Because we're assuming you can use GPT-4, actually. But, you know, you're going to have to impress us with your knowledge and with your command of those details, as well as, of course, with the fact-checking in case it's hallucinating. So I'm with you uh, completely, Greg. I think we should be trying to figure out how to use AI to enhance human capabilities, productivity, creativity. I'm actually not that worried about MBAs. I think we will figure it out. I'm much more worried right at this moment about middle school because I think this cycle, I don't know many middle school teachers who are ready, 
and have talked to some. And I worry that GPT is actually quite good at producing a middle school quality essay. Maybe it's, maybe it's not an A essay, maybe it's a B plus. I don't think it can get you an A yet on the undergraduate essay, not consistently. And so then people may rely on it too much and they may not learn things, particularly about uh, writing in a structured fashion, making arguments, defending arguments. And I, that's, this could become a lost year of education and until the curriculum catches up and we learn how to appropriately deal with it at that level of the education system. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to have to change how we educate people right? <laughs> and how we evaluate them. But I mean, when you look at what ChatGPT can do, for instance, I mean, if you were a designer of ad copy, right? I mean, it would take you a day to sketch out a, a picture that you could then send out for review. And now you could spin up a couple thousand of them in a few seconds, right? So is that going to make the copy editor superfluous or is that going to make them super powerful, right? And super effective and able to do so much more, thereby making themselves more valuable. So that, again, is the heart of the matter. So I think a couple of observations so far, although the jury is obviously out because many people are trying to figure out what to do with this and how to respond and so on in different industries. But a couple of observations. One is, this is not only in the United States where this question is pertinent, because as far as we're aware, within days, everyone everywhere in the world was having some thoughts about ChatGPT and how to use it. And I know people, I mean, I talk to people in detail, civil society organization in Indonesia, for example, in January of this year that had just the same sophisticated understanding and partial misunderstanding about ChatGPT as anybody in the United States. So I think there's a class of jobs that involve relatively routine writing or writing that involves permutations on previous writing, where generative AI is right down the middle of those activities. I think the question is, if you think about the ladder of experience within ad copy, for example, you've got some new people and you've got some very experienced people. Does this technology allow the new people to become much more expert more quickly because they can tap into all this knowledge? Or does it allow the experienced people to dispense with the young people and say, you know what, the first draft I can get from GPT and then I will give it the personal touch. This is a really big issue, Greg, as, as you likely know, right in the Hollywood, so-called Hollywood screenwriters strike, because it has occurred to, to movie executives, they may not need as many writers now. And it has occurred to writers that they would like to use and control AI in writing scripts, but not have it either rip off their work as they see it or displace them. So the executive says, look, the first pass can be written by ChatGPT, and then I'll hire a new person right out of film school to make it sound like a human wrote it. Who gains within the experience ladder, I think, is going to, maybe it differs by industry, maybe it differs by exactly what tasks we're talking about. Maybe there's a power struggle around us, probably, within organizations as people try to figure this out. It does seem unlikely that you're going to need more people writing ad copy than you did before. But this comes back to the new tasks. Can white-collar workers, who would generally have you know quite good education, they're generally quite flexible in what they can do, depending on what age we're talking about, of course, uh, and exactly what education background, but can they deploy to new tasks that use generative AI and pay them perhaps a higher wage? Now, that would be great, right? That would be a completely efficiency improving redeployment of labor. And we think that's feasible, but we don't think that's the default. That's not the main thrust of what Microsoft and OpenAI are doing or what Google and Anthropic are doing. So the dominant, predominant visions in this part of the tech sector right now are not about generating new tasks. They're much more about, hey, you don't need 100 people to do this, you can use two. And here, we'll show you how to do that. But I mean, is this conversation really about the right things? I mean, we're concerned about inequality. We're concerned about the people who are at the bottom of the pyramid. And it seems like this debate, we're concerned about screenplay writers in Hollywood, and we're concerned about accountants, and we're concerned about radiologists. Oh my gosh, the radiologists are gonna lose their jobs. I mean, those are all people that are pretty much at the top of the pyramid. I mean, even the discussion about the artisans who lost their jobs to the automation in the weaving industry. I mean, those people were sort of in the upper echelons, right? And so is our concern misplaced if we're concerned primarily about the accountants and the doctors and the lawyers losing their jobs to automation? I mean, shouldn't we be more focused on, and I think you in the book spend a lot of time talking about the people who are in much lower positions in the social hierarchy and their potential loss of gainful employment. Yes, a fair point. By the way, I'm not worried about radiologists. I do think that 
radiologists, even though some AI proponents think they're going to replace radiologists, I think actually what you have here is a very powerful tool that extremely smart radiologists are already figuring out how to use to enhance their abilities and, and to address their potential biases and so on and so forth. So I, I think at, at the high end, I'm not worried about doctors or radiologists um, in particular. I think you put your finger on the right point, Greg, when you talk about the artisans. So the weavers who lost out in that early phase of the Industrial Revolution were skilled craftsmen and they were paid quite high wages. Now, it's true they weren't nobility, they weren't gentry, they worked with their hands. But within the set of people who worked with their hands, they were pretty high status and pretty well compensated. And let's remember also that a lot of the quote unquote good jobs that we lost after 1980 due to the combination of automation, let's say 70%, globalization, let's say 20% or 25% and other factors. A lot of those jobs were well-paying union jobs. So it was working people, in the US we call them middle-class people, but working people working with their hands who had good jobs and, and they were pushed down from those, not great jobs, not the top of the status jobs, but they were good middle-income, middle-education jobs. They got pushed down to lower income, lower wage, arguably lower productivity positions. And that was a big feature in the polarization of our labor market. So look, the inequality is not new. It's not the responsibility only of artificial AI, artificial intelligence. I think it could go either way, so it's worth discussing. It also seems like AI on its current course is more likely to exacerbate job market polarization than to address it. That's our concern. Yeah, I mean, machine learning, the way, at least the way I teach it, I mean, it's really good at information intensive tasks, right? But anything that does require using your hands, I mean, it's much more difficult to apply. So, I mean, the folks who are the electricians and the plumbers and the mechanics, I mean, their jobs seem to be less amenable to automation using machine learning, right? Requires a much more investment. So in many sense, they're in a safer position. But you talk about some interesting examples like the application of workforce monitoring, right? And how that's being used to reduce the bargaining power of employees. And before we jump into that, I was wondering if you could go back in time a bit to the post-war period, because there's something about the post-war period. I think whether you're in Germany or France or the US, right? There's this sort of nostalgia for the immediate post-war period, right? The belief that the economic growth was very robust and that the gains from economic growth were distributed more equally. So what changed between the immediate post-war period and the more recent decades? So I, let me answer that question. But first, I just want to make one comment on your very good, but I think slightly, not, not incomplete, but I, I think there's, there's a slightly broader, bigger statement about um, the impact on different kinds of jobs. You, you're of course right that machine learning is, is having an immediate impact, has been having an impact for a while, and it's having a big, really big impact now on these information-intensive industries. So anything where, everything that's already digitized, which does include some companies like Amazon that do many things that, you know, before Amazon, we might not have thought as being digitized, but Amazon is digital throughout its DNA. I think there's a second wave already unfolding, applying generative AI to manufacturing, but this will take longer because manufacturing is not fully digitized, as, as you say. And probably this is actually more analogous to electricity. So what we know about electricity was obviously profoundly important, had a big effect on productivity. It took decades to roll out because generally speaking, you had to build a new factory based on electricity to fully harvest the benefits of electrification. I think the same thing will happen in manufacturing, Greg, so that over some period of time, maybe a decade, maybe more, we'll actually have productivity increases in manufacturing and more automation in manufacturing when people build new factories. And that's going to have global implications, including who does what job around the world, because there's a set of jobs that we were previously sending to low-income countries that we may not be sending there anymore, because why run your supply chain across borders with all kinds of points of failure when you can do it domestically? Not necessarily create a huge number of jobs in the US, but have a lot more manufacturing output in the US. Now, I do agree with you on plumbers and mechanics do well. I also think electricians is a really big booming sector, partly because of the digitization agenda, but also because of what needs to be done for clean energy. So yes, uh, some of those job categories are going to be absolutely strong. It is puzzling also why there isn't more movement into some of those occupations. I mean, in a lot of urban areas, it's, it's very, very difficult. I mean, in the Bay Area, it's very, very difficult to find whether it's plumbers or electricians or anybody who's capable of doing that kind of skilled labor. I mean, even 
things like cleaning and yard work that requires some element of skill, very, very difficult to find those people. And those folks are not going to be automated anytime soon. Well, uh, the, so the Bay Area, I think, is a, is a particular topic that is fascinating and, 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 and rather awkward, perhaps, <laughs> in some ways, because you haven't allowed housing to expand to match the needs of your massive economic success, right? So what's happened is you've priced out people at the lower end or forced them to live a long way away. And I think the fact that it's hard to get a plumber, I would suggest is a reflection of the fact that you just, you don't build a lot of housing and you haven't allowed people to move in. This was the part of the topic of my previous book, Jumpstart America with John Gruber. If you look at economic boom towns in American history. So Detroit, we already talked about. Los Angeles is a good one. Houston is actually another good one. These places that really had a decade or two of massive, rapid expansion of the industry, movies in LA and, and oil, obviously, in Houston, the, a huge number of people moved into those places and found somewhere to live at reasonable cost. And one thing that one really dramatic difference over the past 40 years is that we have these pol- these high productivity very innovative polls, which you have one, but Boston is another one, of course, not quite so intense, and New York is another one. There's very little housing been added in those or anywhere close to those urban areas because people don't want high density housing for for various reasons. And that, I think, is, a, in our view, just an additional problem that's been created by local politics around housing. And it's an argument against having so much scientific R&D and fantastic breakthrough potential concentrated in a few geographic places. Because if you don't build housing, people can't come. And if they don't come, you're going to have fewer scientists coming, it's going to be more expensive, and then you're going to have it, find it hard to find a plumber as well. Yeah, no, it's where I grew up outside of Philadelphia. There were essentially two rail lines that emanated from the city in parallel. And along one were the big houses and along the other were the smaller houses. And a lot of the folks who serviced the big houses lived in the smaller houses, but they were they ran alongside of each other almost so that there was this ease of movement back and forth between those two areas. But getting back to this idea, I mean, the post-war period, I mean, what was so special about that? So the post-war period had a number of things going for it, including the fact that the, these big productivity transformations took place, as we talked about in the early 20th century, the transformation of manufacturing, the Henry Ford effect. And the economy that was created after World War II was relatively stable, relatively immune from the big disruptions that had occurred between 1900 and 1945. We had a number of them, right? So there was international trade. There was a flow of investment. There was access to technology. There were big American companies that made investments in other countries. To some extent, there was a reverse flow, but it was a lot of American technology that was going out to the world. And there were a lot of win-win opportunities across what we call now industrialized countries. So between the US, today's European Union, and other relatively high-income countries, UK, Australia, Canada, obviously. So that was an economic miracle. There's don't think we've seen anything like that in the world ever before. And there's a lot of discussion, of course, about why that broke down. Partly, we think it was the way that digital technology deployed. So it was less inclusive, as it turned out. Automation started to erode some of those jobs, good jobs. We talked about that. Globalization, of course, reinforced that. So you start to move jobs from the northern part of the United States to the southern part of the United States. Then you start to move them to Mexico. But of course, the big effect is the rise of China and the so-called China shock. And I I think also, this is something that is a difficult topic for business schools, Greg, but it's certainly something we talk about at MIT. I'm not saying we have a solution, but we talk about it, which is that managerial thinking, including what was taught at business schools, shifted in the 1970s and 1980s. And the concept of shareholder capitalism, which I would contend has been around for a long time. I mean, I can go back to speeches of leading corporate people in the 1920s, articulating why shareholder capitalism is so good for workers. And saying this is the great thing about the American economic system is that we really deliver for workers in the 1920s. In the 1970s and 1980s, there's a different concept that comes to the fore. And it's one in which which treats the workers much more as a cost to be minimized rather than a resource to be developed. And I think that wasn't just business schools, but business economics played a role in that. Broader social discussion played a role in that. And I think that corporate thinking and corporate logic is very powerful. And that is part of what's propelled us in this particular direction that's led to a lot of job market polarization. Yeah, I I was wondering if you could tease apart how much of this change is due to a change in vision and how much is due to a change in the political bargaining power of the different parties, right? I mean, sometimes 
Marxists will look at vision as superstructure. Right? It's just it just flows from what's happening on the ground. And other folks would say, no, it's the vision that's driving things. And I think in your book you have a role for both. So to what extent is the changing vision simply a product of changes in bargaining power brought about by changes in technology? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and very hard, of course, to tease that out completely. I mean, one reason we took on this historic, this bridge historical sweep was to try and look for instances where we felt or see if we could identify places where vision had really been very important and, and very decisive. And there is obviously a relationship between whose vision is adopted and who has social power. And that, that's one of the things we emphasize, which is if you regard me as more important, you listen to me more, particularly if you think in, in this context, if you think I have something to say about appropriate uses of technology. So in the Middle Ages, theologians would have been regarded as having standing to speak to this is appropriate, this is not appropriate. Galileo, of course, had a big run in with the Catholic Church about what you could and could not say using technology about the world and, and, and therefore what kind of technology you could develop. Today, we defer to billionaires. We defer to people who've been very successful and built companies. And we say, this person built a great company. We should listen to them in terms of what comes next. And the reason we have chapter two in the book about Ferdinand de Lesseps, uh, which you, we haven't talked about yet, um, is as a, as a cautionary tale because uh, Lesseps is a an extreme example. The vision trap. Right, right. So Lesseps had a vision and you can see, and his vision was brilliant. His vision delivered the Suez Canal and it cut through an enormous amount of chicanery and political manipulation and confusion that had prevailed for oof, 60 years before he came on the scene. Suez Canal was fantastic success, but when he came to try and build a canal across the Americas, what became the Panama Canal, he was locked into the same vision that had been successful in Suez. And as we argue in the book, that vision had a couple of pretty deep flaws when it came to being applied in the Americas. It turned out you could make something like that work. That's what happened when the Americans took over the Panama project. But the Lesseps vision, which was exactly his playbook, and Lesseps was the, called the great Frenchman. <laughs> Lesseps was the big hope for the rebirth and the resurgence of France after its defeat by Germany in 1870. That vision was deeply flawed. We can see that in, in retrospect. And, you know, I think we should be very careful about placing our technological future in the hands of a few individuals, even if those individuals have previously had great success in something that seems like it might be quite relevant for what comes next. Well, okay. So if those are not the folks we should be listening to, then who should we be listening to? I mean, you talk about sort of having a, a democratic conversation about the uses to which technology should be put. But if you look at the discourse that we see in the general public, right, it's generally pretty low. I mean, in part because of the social media and the other things that you point to, right? But why would we think that the folks participating in the public square would have a, a better sense of how technology could be used? Well, part of the point of the book was to try and uh, empower people. And one of the reasons we have lots of podcast conversations and lots of meetings with different kinds of people in different parts of civil society is to try and get people engaged with, with these topics, Greg. I, I went to a, let's say, very interesting meeting around AI policy and what could become the regulation of AI or not in Washington recently. And these are well-intentioned people. I actually quite sympathetic to them and I get on well with them. But in this key meeting, it's not like the meeting was secret. Well, the meeting was a private meeting. I'm not saying there's a cabal running the world or anything like that, let's be clear. But in this meet, the people in this meeting around the table were two thirds industry, one third military and one civil society person. Oh, and me, I got in because I'm their friend. And that's a bit of a problem, right? So we need more people who have alternative visions. My favorite character in all of global technology history, Greg, I would argue this is the least known hero of technological development in the world ever, is Edwin Chadwick. And so Chadwick, to, <laughs> I would say, remind your listeners, but actually it's to tell them because they've never heard of Chadwick. Chadwick noticed, and, and, and Chadwick was not an engineer. Chadwick was not an inventor. Chadwick was a social reformer from the Benthamist, Benthamist school, uh, Benthamite. And, and he noticed a lot of people were not going to work in mid-19th century Britain because they were sick and then they were dying and medical knowledge was obviously quite imperfect, but it was pretty obvious to many people that the sanitation arrangements of places like 
Manchester and Sunderland and Sheffield, where I'm from, were absolutely horrendous. I'm not going to go into the details because they're pretty horrible to hear. But Chadwick said, and again, he was assembling knowledge from other people. He said, you know what? The problem we need to solve is all these people being sick because it's inefficient. Actually, Chadwick was not big on empathy. <laughs> None of the Benthamites were. It's like, we need to enhance national efficiency and productivity by running water into everybody's home so they can use it to drink and clean clothes, and then using that same water to flush out the human waste through sewers that can convey all the waste products to sewage plants, because we would call them now, and, and where the sewage gets processed and you can create fertilizer and dispose of things safely. That vision is the reason we live as we live today, because you could not have built big cities around the world. You could not have made cities at these hubs for innovation and human improvement without conquering the disease that was absolutely tied up with inadequate or not basically non-existing sanitation. So Chadwick, I think, is the hero because he wasn't focused on invention for the sake of invention. He's like, there is a problem we need to solve. This problem is the following. Let's mobilize what we know. And by the way, it was incredibly expensive to put in clean water and to run sanitation. And so there had to be a financing solution also, which was a local government, central government partnership in Britain, and created a model for how this could be done in terms of engineering and public finance around the world. And I think that's what we should be looking for, Greg, is ways to use technology. So what's the problem to be solved? What is it you want better outcomes for what exactly? And then there may not be a technological solution. I'm not on the side of Bill Gates who says <laughs> there's always a technological solution for every problem he's ever seen. But mobilizing technology and applying it, including generative AI, is a very interesting approach and much more likely to deliver the consequences that you want than just saying, oh, let, let's have Microsoft and, and OpenAI do their thing and then we'll sort it out later. Well, I mean, the key thing about Chadwick's innovation is that this is not a redistribution scheme, right? Let's tax the folks who have the resources to provide benefits to the folks without the resources. I mean, this enhanced productivity across the board, right? So this benefited not just the ordinary person, the employee, but it ultimately flowed back to benefit employers, right? Because the employers got workers who were healthy, that they would show up for work. <laughs> they weren't sickly, they weren't dying, right? So what would be the modern equivalent, right? What kinds of investments could we make in public goods that would benefit people across the board? Okay, I'll come to that question in a moment, but just one observation on Chadwick. So Chadwick's proposals were not loved by everybody initially, in part because they did, quite reasonably, they, it was a local government initiative. Local finance is always in the Western world taxed property quite heavily or drawn heavily on property. And so Chadwick's point was that property values will go up and therefore we get more tax revenue. So the property owners were not absolutely loving the initial Chadwick proposal. Over time, of course, people understood exactly what you just said, which is there's big gains for the employees and for society because these parents are not dying. You don't have all these orphans that you need to deal with. And so and employers can gain and there's more incentive for people to accumulate human capital because they're going to live longer and so on and so forth. Over time, that works out. But very few <laughs> good ideas of the Chadwick type are initially embraced by everyone, including people who own property. I think that if we were to pick, and we do try to pick and raise up a couple of issues in the book that we think would really benefit from more attention, uh, one would be public health. I think that the lessons from COVID, for example, are that access to healthcare is pretty unequal. We run our healthcare system in a pretty inefficient way. And that has consequences, not on the perhaps the same order of magnitude as you know really unhealthy Northern uh, British cities in 1850, but th those consequences are very undesirable for multiple people. So finding ways to improve access to public health, to improve health screenings, to improve preventive healthcare, to increase the capacities and the abilities of nurses, within what's allowed by their nursing license to deliver and, and help deliver uh, healthcare. That's one point we flag. I think education also, Greg, is, is an important issue. So we talked earlier about how we're struggling with thinking about how to adapt the education system so it's not like ruined by generative AI. But it seems we've been waiting for a long time for technology to help improve the efficiency of education. Now, what is efficiency in this context? Is obviously, uh, you know, interesting, difficult question. We know that some things can be delivered well to some audiences remotely at large scale. We also know that individualized tuition, coaching, mentoring is super important. 
and figuring out how to tailor education to people and how to match available resources to the individual student, that also seems like an area that where generative AI could play a role. I don't think either of those problems, public health and essentially public education or public and private education, I don't see either of those as the priorities for the big tech companies. So that's a space in which we're hoping to encourage more people to enter. Now, you've written extensively about the global financial crisis, and you were there at the epicenter of a lot of things when this was happening. And one of the things that you point out is that academia was captured by Wall Street. Do you see something similar happening at the moment with tech? I mean, I think most people on the outside, they would say, oh, academia is very progressive. Academia is interested in improving the lot of the average person. But if that were the case, then why would they be captured by these industries? Why would they be advancing ideas which ultimately would promote inequality? Yes, I I think there is an element of capture. I think that in the financial crisis, there was a particular salience to the academic capture because who else was in a position to to question whether what the financial sector was building was sensible? Okay, it it was fairly technical. We have people who are specialized on finance in in academia. We don't have a lot of other independent uh, voices. For example, there's no equivalent of the National Institutes of Health for Finance. So I think that many academics were lured by the fact that these financial firms were making huge profits. And in terms of status, huge profit in American society is often associated with wisdom. So that was, I think, a fairly prominent element of what went wrong before 2007, 2008. And by the way, academics are much more skeptical of finance today. So I think many of them learned that lesson. I think with the tech industry, there is something potentially parallel. It's also true, by the way, that a lot of the top talent from academia is going to work for industry. So we're losing our independent capabilities. It's also the case, obviously, that if you want to be at the forefront of it, of invention, you need a huge amount of data and a massive amount of capital. And there's only a couple of players in the corporate sector at the top level of that. And the universities are not able to compete, I, I would say, in terms of technology invention. So the deep experts are in those two clusters, the Microsoft and Google clusters. And that, I think, not having outside independent experts worries me. The outside independent experts can get captured. Okay, I get that. I've seen that. But not having them. So I think Dron and I have proposed a National Institutes of Computing that would pool resources across the government and focus on, I mean, there's already some deep and very strong computational resources, for example, in the Department of Energy. But I think organizing that in a more coordinated fashion and using it to challenge the industry on what it's inventing and what it's not inventing. There's also an issue about, are we going to regulate? Who will run the regulations? I would not have the National Institutes of Computing be the regulator. I would have them be the deep thinkers and the people who understand the technology, but don't work for the industry. And that is not an easy thing to work out in the US, given the way we organize society. But I think we do it better with the National Institutes of Health than we did it with finance. And I think computing needs an upgrade in terms of national capabilities and people who who are not looking at profit and loss for the next quarter, but actually saying, okay, what are we inventing here? Why? What could we do better? Could we solve these problems? I think a lot of people would like to engage with that, but that's not the prestige, high money, high status jobs right now. So if we were to get rid of the AI illusion... (laughs) What would we need to do? I mean, do we need to change the perspective of the people in the elites and get them to be the drivers of a change in how this technology can be utilized? Or do we need to reduce the say that they have in the conversation? So as I mentioned before, I don't think that books or ideas or I'm afraid podcasts change history. I think what changes history is events. But when you have an event, when you have a scandal, when you have a a big problem, when you have something that, that is really in people's faces, it matters whether or not you have prepared ideas, whether or not you understand what the problem could be, and whether or not you are ready with solutions. And not just solutions as I wrote a paper about this, you should do what I say, but solutions that have been kicked around, debated, hammered out. So when the financial crisis hit, in earnest in 
early, mid, and, and then late 2008, we were struggling. And we was I was at the IMF, but we were talking with a lot of leading people in central banks and ministries of finance and so on. We were struggling to understand what had gone wrong because we had this mental model, and I'll just speak for myself, I had a mental model in which I thought uh, major financial crises were something that happened in emerging markets, not in the US or the EU. That mental model was wrong, right? I was able to divest myself of that mental model over time, and that helped me come up with ideas for doing things differently. Um, it's very helpful to have policy-oriented discussions and work out proposals in advance of whatever events or crisis we might face. And I think that's what we're doing. I think that's what, that's what our book's about, and that's what this conversation is about whose ideas can be changed, how people can be persuaded, who might make a different decision. Good question, but remains to be seen. And I think you sort of, you have to work all the angles on that. In, in the, my previous book, the book with John Gruber that I mentioned before, Jumpstarting America, we were proposing a big increase in federal funding for scientific basic science R&D, arguing that, that would generate a lot of new jobs that could be spread around the country. And people were politely receptive to that, but also not that interested. And I remember clearly my last meeting before COVID, last in-person meeting, was with a senior staff person on Capitol Hill who said, oh, it's very interesting, Simon, but you know we don't really see the opportunity for this. Well, then COVID showed us the value and importance of scientific research because, of course, we redeployed federally funded idea generation machinery into vaccine development. And there was also a much less dignified and much less satisfying but important scramble to deploy resources into the testing arena. And by early 2022, it had become clear to people that re-upping our investments in scientific R&D was good for what you could achieve and what you can focus those goals on, the goals you know you can state. But it's also good because you build a technological capacity, you build human abilities that can be redeployed in the time of a crisis to solve other problems. That's actually the origin of federal support for R&D from World War II and the thinking that went into development of radar and then, of course, the atomic bomb. But COVID was a reminder to people, and it's COVID, I, I would say, Greg, that changed the political equilibrium and brought 65 senators to support the Chips and Science Act of 2022. However, the fact that we'd had debates, we'd had the arguments, we'd deployed the data, and it wasn't just us, it was other people. There's a very good group at Brookings, for example, that had done something similar. But the fact these ideas were out there and had been kicked around, that was very helpful. And I think that's what we're doing here is saying, look, it doesn't have to be this way. We're going too far in this direction. We can redeploy. I'm not holding my breath for instant change. Nobody reads a book and says, oh my goodness, Simon Drone really cracked this one. Let's change policy. But policy will change. We will see things. We will experience things. We'll see what happens to jobs. I don't know exactly what those events will be. I don't know how they'll be perceived. I don't know how they'll play out politically. But I do know if you've got constructive, more proven or, or kicked around ideas when you start your response, that's a better place to start than we were in 2007, 2008, for example. But it seems like at the end of the day, if it's not going to result in higher profits for these companies to apply technology in a socially productive way, then it's probably not going to apply to socially productive way. I mean, you, you talk about Facebook, right? Use the example of Facebook and you talk about how Facebook could have potentially done things a bit differently. Do you think that represents a trade-off between profitability and social value? Or do you think that there is a way to reconcile those, right? Do you think that Mark Zuckerberg just misunderstands how he could make money in a different way? Or would it require a company like Facebook to sacrifice profitability to create a better public square, let's say? I think that's a good question. It's a very fair question. You should probably have Mark Zuckerberg on, talking of tech visionaries, and press him on the same topic. My view is that Facebook could do very well by being more careful and certainly could have been much more careful. And I think also they, they violated some of the basic responsibilities of business in the way they acted and reacted in the situation in Myanmar, for example, where they have been accused with substantial justification of 
fanning the flames of, of ethnic hatred and becoming a tool of really nasty um, incitement to, to violence. So I think that the sort of extreme view of capitalism has been with us for a long time, but it re-emerged in the 70s and 80s, which is, look, business just does, just pursues profit. Everything else is the responsibility of government. And if you allow us to make profit in a certain way and we do it, you can't complain. I mean, seriously, where do the rules come from? Who makes the regulations? Who's in those conversations around policy? I walk in the room, Greg, it's two thirds industry, right? Don't tell me that regulation is somehow descending from the heavens, independent of what the industry wants. That's not realistic. So yeah, I think Facebook and other social media companies have a lot to answer for. And I do agree that pursuing profit is a very powerful logic. And I do think, and I work in a business school, and I'm comfortable with the idea that many instances for many people, pursuing profit is just fine. And you do get strong, reasonable social outcomes. And we can address some of the problems that occur ex post. But I think we've had some bad experiences with digital technology. I think if we can tilt the direction of technological change, and if we can push towards more improvement for more people, that would be a really big positive. And I do worry that if, and if you think about certainly the history of American technology development since 1940, it's had two legs, a private sector one and a strong federal R&D basic science one. And these two have largely been complementary. Right now, everything around artificial generative AI is driven by that private leg. The government is not a player in that process. The universities are not really players in that process. And I worry about the direction that's taking us. Well, last question. You mentioned in an aside that MBAs <laughs> played a, a role in the promotion of inequality and perhaps the move down this road that is not the road that you would want us to choose. How do you think MBAs need to change the way they approach business? Do we need to change the way we teach MBAs? I mean, if it's true that MBAs the impact that they've had on companies is to increase uh, profitability, but not to increase the rent sharing in any way, then what do we need to do? Is there a change that can take place within the business school environment? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think that this is, it, it's look, the curriculum change to become more focused on squeezing workers and seeing workers as a cost. And I think the curriculum could shift towards more emphasis on developing workers as a resource and approaching human capital in, in a different way. And obviously it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen because one faculty person wants to change it. It's a matter of, you know, it reflects a broader consensus around economics and other applied social science. I don't think that there's a broad movement of that direction currently, although I think economics has changed a great deal since I was a graduate student in the 1980s and become much more sympathetic to social concerns including externalities, but also broader issues. Whether economists are willing to embrace this idea that vision matters and that there's choice in technology, I don't know. I mean, we wrote the book partly for them, but also thinking that economists might not be the easiest people to persuade. And so we wanted to reach a broader audience. And hopefully there will be a lot of discussion, debate, arguments about that, and it will contribute to thinking about what what we should teach in business schools and more broadly. But I, I think a lot of young people today really do care about social impact. They may be persuaded too easily by some things that are various forms of greenwashing. But I think we will also get through that. And I think we will, the clean energy discussion is constructive in trying to think about what really makes a difference. And the environment and the climate are uh, sending us some very clear signals. And young people are responding to that, whether that same sort of logic will be brought to jobs, who has good jobs, who gets better jobs, and job market polarization remains to be seen. But I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I actually rather like the American political process. I know that's a controversial thing to say, but it's much more open and much more amenable to argument and to pressures and this kind of conversation than where I'm from, for example. So I'm optimistic we will make some progress, Greg, but I think exactly what happens depends very much on events and what we see and what we experience and how that's perceived. So that is all still, of course, to come. Well, Simon, thank you so much. I mean, I think the key lesson is that the direction that technology takes is a choice, right? And it's not inevitable as a function of the technology itself. The book is called 
power and progress, our thousand-year struggle over technology and prosperity. And of course, don't forget the other books, Jumpstart America, White House Burning, and 13 Bankers. Talk again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. 